morning. All right. I agree with Joey. It's always a joy to see baptisms. And uh, Margaret, Natalie, welcome to our church family. Thank God for your testimony of faith. And uh, look, we look forward to the ways in which we can better build you up in Christ. And you can do the same to us. Uh, we're grateful for the ways in which Christ is growing his church, not just numerically, but spiritually as evidenced by these two sisters. Uh, let me just briefly uh, pray again as we open up to 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. That's where we'll be. Those are the next verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. Father, we do need your help. Spirit, open our eyes. Empower us. To behold Christ. Help us towards that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last Sunday night, we were in a members meeting. Our church had a members meeting. And I was sitting there in that members meeting. And as I was listening to things happen, I began to be increasingly burdened. Um, because of all the things that sort of kept going on. I, I just sort of started putting things together. We took in six new members. Uh, we talked about future plans of a building and potential financial needs. We, uh, we then, uh, heard the request for 10 volunteers that were needed for the safety team. We, uh, heard more pleas for restoration kids workers. Uh, we heard the request of a coffee team. Um, we talked about this new place you heard Chris just pay, pray for to take a mission team overseas. And I was thinking about you guys about sort of sitting on the receiving end of all of that stuff. If I'm you, I'm sitting there going, that's a lot. And we're not that big of a church, right? And we're already doing a lot. How are we going to find these people to do these things? That sort of burdened me. It was burdening me a lot. And then I came to the passage for this week. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. Here is God's word. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, I know what you guys are thinking. Some of you are thinking, what in the world does that have to do with feeling the increasing burden of a church life. Well, friends, the more that I study this passage, the more I thought about this passage, the more I pray through this passage, the more two things became clear to me. One, the first thing that became clear to me is we so often think about ministry, and I'm guilty of this. We so often think about ministry and do ministry in the church, in the church in our own strength, with our own plans, with our own efforts. And secondly, the thing I began to think about in light of studying this passage was how in doing that we quench the spirit. And it was after this, when I began to be convicted about this and think about it and pray about it, I began to be more hopeful because I began to pray that God would forgive me for all of the ways that I quench the spirit in doing ministry, doing work in my own strength, in my own ways, and not leaning into Christ and his word and the spirit. And then I began to pray that we would then begin to embrace the power of the spirit in the life of our church to do whatever it is we need to do in order to testify to the greatness of Christ to our neighbors and the nations and to help each other on to follow Jesus, that we would be a church that would be spirit empowered. And as we do that, I trust that whatever needs we might have would be fulfilled 
Not because of our plans and our efforts, but because of the Spirit's work among us. Instead of seeing these new opportunities as I can sometimes see them, as sort of regretful obligations, we begin to see them as empowered opportunities to live out the new creation that the Spirit is working in and through us. Which leads me to the big idea this morning, big idea of this passage. Don't quench the Spirit, but embrace His power and walk in newness of life together. Don't quench the Spirit, but embrace His power and walk in the newness of life together. Now, I'm going to go ahead and be honest with you guys right from the front end. I'm staring at that clock, and I've got a lot of food to cook and feed. And I can tell you, I'm sitting right there praying. Lord, I, I feel the need to speak really fast and cut a bunch of stuff. So I'm going to trust you guys on a family worship Sunday of all Sundays. I'm just going to preach what I trust the Spirit had me to say. Okay? So here we go. Uh, there's some outlines. I don't normally do this. If you're new to this church, this is not common for me. But because we have a lot here, we're going through a lot, thinking about a lot. There are outlines on those bulletins. And it's going to help you think. We're going to, we're going to go through a lot. So feel free to get up and grab one of those. They're behind you right here. You can see where we're going. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. So first off, first point in thinking about this, not quenching the spirit, embracing his power, walking in newness of life. First point, delight in the Trinity. Delight in the Trinity. So we're going to take a couple steps back because we're talking about the Holy Spirit and let's frame the Holy Spirit in light of the Trinity. And friends, the Trinity is a matter of first importance for one very simple, easy to understand reason. The Trinity is very simple. If you're new to the faith, We believe in the Trinity, and it's really important for one reason, because it defines the God that we worship, right? To deny any one of these three sentences that I'm about to move or about to read is to move yourself outside of the confines of historic Christianity, right? And those three sentences are as follows. They kind of, they define the Trinity. Uh, First statement, God is three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Second, each of those persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are fully God. Third, there is one God. Each per, There are three distinct persons. Each person is fully God. And there is one God. We see this uh, taught in numerous places, but one very easy place to understand, to see it, is in Jesus' final words to the disciples. That great commission, wherein Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Not names, name, one, one God, and the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so if you reject one of those three sentences there, you've landed outside the realm of historic Christianity. You've moved into the realm of the God of, say, Islam, or the God of uh, Judaism, or the God of the Jehovah Witnesses, or the Mormons. Or you've landed into what is called modalism, which is taught by oneness Pentecostals teaching that God sort of takes off his father hat and puts his son hat on. In other words, denying the distinction of person. But the truth is, friends, the the truth is is that God is tri-unity, the three in one. Three distinct persons, each fully God, one in essence. One in essence. And this is what Christians, by the way, have believed for 2,000 years. And where there have been attempts to reject this principle, in every case, these attempts have proven to be heretical. Anytime people have tried to press this. The most famous of these cases, of course, is the Council of Nicaea, which happened in the 4th century in the 300s, wherein was produced the Nicene Creed, which we still read today. 
So the God, that God is triune, explains, friends, so much about our world. Most notably, the Trinity explains the relational nature of creation. God has been in relationship to himself from eternity. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. Father, Son, and Spirit. This is explains why God can said to be love. Not that he has love, but he is love because of the Trinity. If you don't have that, then he can't, you can't say that of him. So for instance, the God of Islam cannot be love because they have no one. Their God has no other God to set its affection upon. It explains the world we live in. The triune God of the Bible explains why uh, we were created in his image. It would then instinctively tell us as those created in his image, it would tell us, the Trinity would, that we worship not something but someone. And why we all endeavor, it explains why we endeavor to live in relationship to one another, why that's instinctive for us. So many more things I could say about that, but the Trinity explains humanity in so many ways. And much more could be said about this. I would strongly encourage you, if you have never read the book, uh, I'm sorry to say that they're not downstairs. They're normally in the bookstall, uh, but there's a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. I would highly commend it to you. It is fantastic. So it'll help explain these things all the more. But there's certainly things about the Trinity that are difficult to understand, right? Very difficult to understand, right? Things that, yeah, we just can't understand. And I don't know about you, but that comforts me. That comforts me because if I could explain everything about God, that would likely mean that he was an invention of man, right? I would expect that if God is infinite and I'm finite, I would expect that there would be aspects to God's godness that would be incomprehensible to me as a finite person. And if that wasn't the case, I would be a bit more suspicious. The God of the Mormons, for instance, is very explainable, right? The Trinity, difficult to understand, but it actually, I think, encourages our faith uh, while there is still mystery to it. But let's drill down a little bit and think about the Spirit's relationship to the Trinity. So second point here, do not quench the Spirit. That's the command of Paul here. Do not quench the Spirit. Let's think a little bit more carefully about the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. Here in this passage in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, if you're new here, we've been walking right through. These are just the next verses. Paul has just finished giving 12 commands to this local church. He's just finished 12 commands, and he finishes it up with this all-encompassing, confident, authoritative, apostolic conclusion when he says, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All these things he lists. This is God's will for you. Right? The reality is, friends, we spend a lot of time. I can remember looking for books about what is God's will for my life. We spend a lot of time thinking individualistically about God's will for our life. Yet I wonder what would change if we would be more interested and more invested in what God has clearly said is his will for our life. How would things change in our life? If we began to think more, less even about, uh, if we, we thought less about, you know, whether or not I should marry this person or take this job or buy this house or where I should live. We thought less about those things, not get rid of them, but less and more clear about what God says is his will for us. I think those other more individualistic aspects would get more oriented. But before we think about what it might look like to then quench the spirit in light of God's will for our life. Let's back up again and think about who the Spirit is. We thought about the Trinity. Let's now think about the Spirit. What is, who is the Spirit and what is his role in our lives? First thing we should say here, we should note about the Spirit, is the Spirit is not an it but a he. Not an it but a he. The Spirit is not some impersonal power 
like the force in the Star Wars trilogy, right? That is not the spirit. Jesus refers to the spirit as comforter and a counselor. He even goes on to ascribe the spirit with the masculine pronoun. He will teach you all things. In scripture, we see that the spirit can speak, can choose, can give, can comfort, can guide, can be lied to, can be blasphemed. And so therefore, the spirit is a deeply personal person, not an it. And as to what the role of the spirit is within the Trinity, we see that most clearly illustrated in Jesus's baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. There we see Jesus comes up out of the water after he was baptized. The heavens are open to him. And the text of scripture says, quote, and he, Jesus, saw the spirit of God descending like a dove to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so, guys, let's let's forget all of those Trinitarian illustrations, right? Right. Water, steam and what is it? Ice and the shamrock. And an apple, like I was taught growing up. Those are actually heretical when you actually slow down and think about them. Good intentions, bad illustrations. Here's your example of the Trinity. This one right here, Matthew 3, right? Each person, you get the illustration of the Trinity. There are three distinct persons there, Father, Son, and Spirit in the baptism. Father, Son, and Spirit. And they are necessarily in union with one another. The Father taking pleasure in the Son, as the Son loves the Father. And the role of the Spirit, here it is, guys. The role of the Spirit is to go from the Father to anoint or empower the Son. We see that even as it happens right after the baptism, Jesus is then carried by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Luke chapter 4 verse 1, listen. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus anointed, empowered by the Spirit, then goes out in the spirit. The spirit leads him into the wilderness where he's tempted by the evil one. And there, unlike Israel that failed the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus is found faithful. He overcomes. He's empowered by the spirit. He is found faithful, uniquely faithful. Therefore, he comes out and lives that sinless life. And therefore, he is able to inaugurate the kingdom of God through his faithful life, through his sin atoning death through his resurrection and his eventual ascension. Jesus, by the power of his atoning work, overcomes sin and death for those that believe. Which is why Paul would write in Romans 1, 4 to 6. Jesus, speaking of the resurrection here, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power. How? According to the spirit of holiness. And how did that happen? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then notice the connection to us. Paul goes on through whom, through Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why have we received it to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So in other words, what Paul just said, summing this up. The resurrection of Christ from the dead was the spirit-empowered declaration of redemption so that we who believe might be resurrected ourselves by that same power of the person of the spirit. Or as Paul puts it, to bring about the obedience of faith. So we that are in Christ, you saw that illustrated in these two baptisms. When they, they were dead, 
They went down, they were buried, and they came up just like Christ did, united with his life. And therefore, as they come up, that symbolizes their new life in the same way that Jesus has new life. And all that is done through the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit of God, not our strength, not our might at all. You heard that in the testimonies of both of our sisters. Both of them talked about how they had tried to do something and found to be failing, but they trusted in God to do it for them. The Spirit is bringing this new life about applying the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit, uh, and so we are get this resurrection power by the power of the Spirit to bring about obedience for Jesus' sake, imparting resurrection power. Jesus references the Spirit in this way, and I think this will really help us a lot. John 16, 13 to 14. If you were to come up to me and say, Nathan, describe the work of the Spirit, this would be my passage. I could go to Matthew 3. There's a lot of places I go, but here's would be my... Second passage, the first one would be Matthew 3, this would be my second. John 16, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And here's my little shorthand description of the spirit's work. He will Glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So friends, the the Spirit does all kinds of things, but most simply we could say the Spirit serves to empower the church to glorify Christ. He counsels, he guides, he convicts, he illuminates, he manifests, or in a word, he empowers He resurrects, that is. He empowers for what purpose? That we as the church might glorify Christ in our obedience. So we are a community, friends, that knows that we're dead. We know that we are weak, not strong. So again, if you're considering the Christian faith, you need to know weakness right here, not strength. I am not up behind this pulpit because I'm awesome, right? Spend five minutes with me. You'll find that out, right? I'm an idiot in so many ways. Right, It's God's grace to me right? that's giving me life to so empowers this work. We recognize our weakness. You heard that in our sister's testimonies. And so therefore, there's our definition of the Spirit's work in the church's life. Empowering the church to glorify Christ. That's the work of the Spirit in our lives. Empowering the church, empowering us to glorify Christ. And you see that exactly is what happened in the apostles. You remember before these guys... They're, they're kind of slow-witted and uh, they're scared, of course, after the moment of Jesus' death. They're slow-witted, scared. And then after the resurrection, or sorry, after the ascension of Christ, Christ sends the Spirit, right? And he takes up residence, Acts chapter 2, in the bodies and the lives of those apostles. And it changes them to now be people that are no longer scared, but instead people that are empowered, that are testifying to the gospel, that are courageous and speaking the truth of the God of God. Testifying to the truth of the new covenant that God promised in the old covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33, when God said, I will put my law within them. That's what the Spirit's doing. He's applying the gospel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so friends, God's presence was first with Adam and Eve in the garden. Then it was with Israel. God's presence was with was with Israel in the temper, uh, the tabernacle in the temple. Then God's presence was with his people in Christ. And now, for those that repent and believe on Christ, 
God's presence is within us that believe. Right? First Corinthians 13, sorry, First Corinthians 3.16, we are now the temple of God. And we wait for that final chapter of redemption when the new heavens, new earth, God's presence will be there in our midst. No longer by faith, but by sight. But now, the Spirit dwells within us that believe. And he is empowering us by applying the benefits of the gospel so that we might increasingly uh, be ready for where we're going, home to heaven. So let me give you some specific ways uh, of how the Spirit empowers us to glorify Christ in the church. This, we might think of these next sort of eight points I'm about to give you, um, sort of explaining what you saw happen and what, uh, what you heard happen to Natalie and Margaret or to any Christian. This explains what the Spirit does. This explains what he does. Applying the verse. This is how he empowers us to glorify Christ. So I have eight. You have seven in your outline. I added one. All right, so you can write it there. There's a little bit of room, I notice. You can write the eighth one in there. Here's the first way that the Spirit empowers us to glorify Christ in the church. The Spirit first regenerates us. The Spirit regenerates us that believe. Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's so important. That's a fundamental, foundational truth for Christianity. We were not sort of groggy in our sins, right? We were not sort of, sort of alive a little bit in our sins. No. Uh, we, this is a unique teaching of the Christian faith, right? Every other faith in the world basically says, obey and God will love you. The Christian faith says, God loves you, therefore obey. Huge difference, right? So we're not saying that if we obey enough, then we get the life. No, that is not the gospel. That's every other religion. That's not Christianity. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And so for those that are not in Christ this morning, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Listen, friend, this describes you. You're not sort of kind of awake. Scripture would say you're dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. It goes on to say, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. Uh, and are by nature, Ephesians 2, 3, by nature children of wrath. That's you, friend. I share that because I love you and I want you to know life. See, a dead person can't sort of will himself to be healthy, right? So therefore, no amount of good works can sort of will yourself up into life. No, in our rebellion, we're separated as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. We are separated from God, dead in our trespasses and sins. And then the spirit is the one that applies the benefits of Christ to the Christian that they might be, boom, awakened. They see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ and are awakened to new life. The spirit did it. Ephesians 2, 6, write down. God has raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly place. God raised us up. By the power of the Spirit. God the Father applies the blessings of God the Son by the power of God the Spirit through regeneration. Regeneration. Resurrection power. God did it all of our salvation. All of it. From start to finish. He is the first and final mover. Which is why Christians believe that salvation is by grace alone. Grace alone. Not by our work. We were blind and dead. The Spirit opened our eyes to see and savor Christ so that we might be regenerated. So the Spirit regenerates the Christian. Second, the Spirit seals or adopts the Christian as sons and daughters. Seals or adopts. Ephesians 1.11. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, maybe that's happening to somebody right now, when you heard the gospel, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed 
with the promised Holy Spirit. Earlier, Paul wrote in verse 5 of chapter 1 in Ephesians, that we were God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So the Spirit applies the gospel to the Christian by regenerating us, right? Awakening us, giving us sight of Christ. That's how we got regenerated, by seeing Christ. And also he then seals or he adopts us as children. So we're not only saved, this is important, guys. We're not only saved from our sins, we're saved to God. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that we're just saved from our sin, but we're saved to God. We get God. That's the good news. We get to be with the one of whom is forever delight. God did not just declare us sin or uh, didn't just declare us forgiven and then send us on our merry way. No, he brought us home to live with him that we might be with him and enjoy him. And the spirit is the one that seals that, that he might keep us forever. The seal, the Christian is sealed. Christian, you're sealed. Jesus says in John six that he lost none. He loses none. Satan is not more powerful than Jesus. He seals the Christian. That's what the spirit does. And third thing that the spirit does is he assures the Christian. He assures the Christian. So listen, this is a fun experiment. So did any of you Christians, you don't have to raise your hands, but just sort of answer this question internally. Were you encouraged by what I just said in the past four minutes? Right? About the fact that God regenerated you and that secondly, that he then sealed you. Did that encourage you? Guess what? That was the spirit. That literally was the spirit. You want evidence of the fact that God is real and that he's working? That was literally the spirit. He did that in you right now. Right? That that assurance, that warmth. I'm one of his. The spirit literally did that in this moment. Romans 8.16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. All the church is doing, and baptism is not making one a Christian. We're just recognizing that the Spirit seems to be testifying to it as you give testimony to it. The Spirit assures. Isn't that fun? Fourth, the Spirit sanctifies. Sanctifies. And by sanctification, I mean making progressively holy. Two things. This is really important to understand, guys. You get justification and sanctification. Justification is the moment we are declared righteous. When the spirit applies the truth to us, gives us sight, we are declared in that moment. Sanctification is working out or building up the sanctification or the life that we already have, right? It's working out what has already been given to us. The best illustration of this is the pauper that marries the king, right? The day that she marries the king, she's, everything's hers. She takes his name. She's in the king. She has the entire inheritance of the kingdom, but she still learns, she'll still need to learn how to live in that new name, right? She's still going to think like a pauper instead of like a queen. So in the same way, that's what sanctification, that's what the spirit is doing, is he's helping us grow up in our new name, in our new identities in Christ. Sanctification. Here's a verse to show this, Ephesians 3.16. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. There it is. With power, how? Through his spirit in your inner being. And we're reminded, aren't we? Going back to 1 Thessalonians 4, look back up in chapter 4, verse 3. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification. You're growing up in Christ. The spirit sanctifies, cleanses. Fifth, the spirit brings about fruit. 
This brings about fruit. So if you've been a Christian very long, you know the fruit of the Spirit. And know, by the way, this is important. It's fruit. It's not fruits. One. Every Christian should have these fruits. It's one fruit, then pushed out by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit, singular, of the Spirit, this is what should be manifesting, not perfectly, but it should be manifesting in the life of the Christian. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? So where you see these things done by and for the glory of Christ, there, friend, you are seeing God's Spirit at work. Sixth, the Spirit distributes gifts to the church. Distributes gifts to the church. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul lists out a number of gifts there in 1 Corinthians 12, and then he concludes in verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. That's a fun thought too. If you're in Christ, you think, I don't have any value. Oh, well, apparently you do, right? Uh, I can't do anything. Well, apparently you can. Uh, so the Spirit saves you, sanctifies you, grows you up, and then he gifts you, right? I might have a gift that might be a little bit more evident, but all of you have gifts, right? Maybe the maybe the thumb maybe seems to have a lot of usefulness, but like your spleen has a you, you don't think about your spleen, but it actually you need your spleen. So in the same way, we need all of the gifts. If you are a member of this church, God has gifted you to so work out those gifts so as to build up the glory of Christ in our midst. The Spirit distributes gifts. Seventh, the Spirit empowers for witnessing to the gospel. He empowers for witnessing to the gospel. What is true of the original disciples is true of all of his disciples. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Beloved, God gave you his spirit to empower you to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ, of its truthfulness and the need to repent and believe. God gave that to you. He's working his spirit through you so that you would speak the gospel. Not that you would save people, but you would testify to its power, to its truthfulness. And as you do that, where that has happened, think about this, guys. If you're looking for evidence of the Spirit, where you have testified to the truthfulness of gospel and called people, the, the, the point is not to measure if somebody believed. That's not your work. That's the Spirit's work. Your job is just to testify to it. He empowers you to testify to it. And as you've done that, listen, you, there's the evidence of the Spirit in your life. He empowers for witnessing to the gospel. The power of the gospel is not in you. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to awaken. Eighth and finally, the Spirit illuminates to the truth. The Spirit illuminates to the truth. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. Paul writes, No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have, speaking of the church, the we there is the church in Christ. Now we have re, re, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? Why did we receive their spirit? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. 
There you go. Have you ever had this happen? This has been such a joy to me the last couple of weeks. Our interns talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, right? Have you ever been sitting there reading your Bible, Christian, and then something was sweet to you and you looked at it and went, man, that's great. That was the spirit. That literally was him illuminating it to you. There's the evidence of it. So in these, I find myself in recent weeks going, thank you, spirit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because the natural man, right, that is apart from Christ, they don't read the Bible and look at, you know, read Isaiah 53 and go like, oh, man, I love Jesus. No, they're not doing that. They don't care. It might be just intellectual truth to them. But for us, we value it down deep in our hearts. That's the evidence of the Spirit's life in you, illuminating you to the truth. Not only seeing that it's sweet, but seeing that it's real, that it's actual. Spirit is doing that work. Guys, there are so many more things I could mention. Steve shared with me he found 200 things or something like that. Anyway, I don't know what it was, Steve. But nevertheless, there's so many more things. I gave you eight. These are foundational aspects of the Spirit's empowering the church. The Spirit regenerates. He seals and adopts. He assures. He sanctifies. He brings forth fruit. He distributes gifts to each one. He empowers for witnessing. He illuminates us to the truthfulness of the word. Why? This is so important, guys. Why does he do that? Remember John 16, that we might glorify Christ. Glorify Christ. And in doing this, we increasingly engage in our new life. We shake off our deadness and we embrace the freedom that we have as citizens of heaven. Therefore, First Thessalonians 5, you're wondering if ever I was going to get there. Do not quench the spirit. You see how that lands now? When you slow down and think about the work of the spirit, what a foolish thing it is to do to quench it. Quench meaning to throw sort of a water on its fires that means to illuminate us and empower us. Why would we quench the spirit? He so clearly means to do us good. Why would we throw water on the Christ glorying fire that the spirit means to stir us up in? Why would you want to not have more of Christ in your life? And to the degree that you quench the fruit of the spirit, are you glad that's happening? Is that going pretty good for you? No, don't quench him, but instead invite him. Does that mean it will be easy? Of course not. Everything worth doing in this life is hard. Look at the cross. Don't quench the spirit. Welcome him, engage him, invite him for more of your life in Christ, Christian. And friend, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, as evidenced by the fact that you are not living for the glory of Christ, Well, friend, you have not yet even begun to quench the spirit. No, you're still dead. You need new life in the spirit to begin with. This, by the way, is why the Bible says, uh, talks about that one unforgivable sin, right? Which is blasphemy to the Holy Spirit. What is that? Very simple. The spirit, you just heard all these things the spirit means to do. Most notably, he regenerates. And so the reason why the one unpardonable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit is because you're saying no to repenting and believing on Christ alone for salvation. So, friend, you need to repent and believe. Ask for God to give you sight. Ask for God to open up your eyes to see the the beauty of Christ, the truthfulness of the atonement, and your need for him. Pray that God would have you to be born again. Kids, for those of you that keep being taught Jesus, pray for life in Christ. You're not going to find Jesus by trying harder and memorizing more. You need the spirit to wake you up. Repent and believe. 
that you might know him. Friends, this is God's word to you. We might even call it prophecy. Look at where it goes next. First Thessalonians 5. You might be asking, how might we quench the spirit? First Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. All right, I can tell you I spent a lot of work on this uh, this week, trying to understand what the scriptures mean by prophecy here uh, in the New Testament in particular. A couple ways in which Christians read these, this notion of prophecies. There are faithful, some faithful Christians that take prophecies here in the New Testament to be different from the prophecies of the Old Testament. They would say that since we find prophecies need to be tested, and by the way, you can see that in the very next verse. You see that there. Since you, since we find in the New Testament these, te- these prophecies need to be tested, they would say, then they are different in nature from the Old Testament prophecies, which were very clear, right? Thus says the Lord. Prophet says, Ezekiel says, do this, do that. New Testament prophecies, this group of people would say uh, that uh, they are of a different nature since they need to be tested. And so, therefore, they would say prophecy is sort of cloudy and ongoing with new revelations still today. Uh, Thus, the need to test them. That's one group of Christians. If you want to get really nerdy, the language for this is the the non-cessationists. If that means nothing to you, don't worry about it. You don't need to know it. Then there's this other group of Christians, another faithful group of Christians called the cessationists. Uh, these are a group of faithful Christians as well. They would say of prophecies that Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy are the same. They are not mixed with any kind of error, but they are the truth. In fact, this group would even go so far as to say that prophecy in the New, New Testament culminates in the teaching of the apostles. As represented in the now closed canon, the closed rule, which is the New Testament. In other words, there's not new ongoing revelation to the person and the work of Christ, but it's right here. We have it all now, uh, right? We think about this in Hebrews chapter 1 when Christ is the culmination of God's glory. Therefore, there's no new revelation that's needed. Uh, the New Testament prophecy, these, this group would say it's all, we all have it in the teaching of the apostolic doctrine. In other words, when the apostles were spreading the gospel, planting churches, teaching them, what did they not have at that time? The New Testament, right? It wasn't there. They didn't have it. The apostles were commissioned by Christ to have this authority to teach the truthfulness of the new covenant, to lay the foundation, which is exactly what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.20, laying the foundation, the apostles and the prophets, laying the foundation of the new covenant. But until that apostolic doctrine was completed in what we now have of the 27 books of the New Testament, there would be prophecies made by many in the life of the church. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 14.3, that everybody should aspire for prophecies. Those things would need to be tested against the prophetic word given by the apostles. Which, by the way, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians 14.3 and just connect that to what Paul goes on to say a few verses down later, Paul's talking about how his word is the word of God. So these prophecies you should be aspiring need to match the apostolic teaching. Prophecy then is the faithful explanation of the apostolic doctrine received in the New Testament. We have no need of more new revelation in terms of what the truthfulness about God and godliness is. We have that in the New Testament. 
the truthfulness, the completion of the apostolic doctrine given by Christ himself. Let me give you one verse to kind of help you kind of begin to see this. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. In other words, what Peter's saying there is we saw revelation. We were there. We didn't make this stuff up. He then recounts in 2 Peter 2, he then recounts his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah are there and the glory of Christ came out. He talks about that experience. And then he concludes in verse 19. And we have the, note the language, and we have the prophetic word. More, this is huge, more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what? Than what he just talked about. More fully confirmed than being on the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes on, verse 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, note that language, prophecy of Scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God. How? As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing out those words, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter seems to be saying here is this. He's saying God-ordained experiences and human interpretation of those events are not reliable prophecies. We now have something in the new covenant that is better, as he said, using Peter's word, more fully confirmed, the prophetic word. It's more fully, it's better, in other words, I don't know if you ever thought about this, what Peter seems to be saying in Second Peter 1 is that if you had the choice of being on the Mount of Transfiguration there with Peter, James, and John, or being here today in 2023, I'd kind of rather be there, but anyway, if I could have both. But nevertheless, if we had the choice, Peter's saying you're in a better position. Because the accomplishment of the gospel, the spirit comes, and then you have the completed truthfulness that interprets those events, which Peter didn't have. Clearly, because Peter's up on the Mount of Transfiguration going like, uh, let's build some tents. And Jesus is like, no, no, Peter, no, no. Right? So you have the word. We're in a better position. That's what he seems to be saying, the prophetic word. A prophetic word is that which is wrought by the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Therefore, beloved, here's the command. Do not quench the spirit. How? By despising the clear teaching and application of the prophecy of the word of God. Don't quench the spirit by despising the clear teaching and application of the prophetic word of God. Don't despise it. Love it. Bless it. Receive it. Go along with it. Look for churches. Look for people in those churches that don't build their life on extra biblical so-called revelation. Instead, heartily look for and receive the prophecy of Scripture as it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. More fully confirmed. Look for them. So here's a question for you to evaluate if that's what you're doing, if you're quenching the Holy Spirit and despising prophecies. Here's a question to evaluate that. Do you love churches, books, uh, speakers, podcasters, fellow Christians that clearly feed you the prophetic word, that clearly teach that to you? Do you love that? Or would you despise the prophetic word and seek out other people and build your life around other people that tamper with that word and build their lives on more unconfident, human-inspired words about God? Which one would you prefer? 
building your life on people, surrounding yourself with people that are clearly teaching what's true about God, or those that are building their life on things that are sort of extra biblical revelation that's sort of unclear, which one would you prefer? And here's the thing, guys. Sometimes people will ask me, Nathan, is Restoration Church a spirit-led church? Hopefully you'll have a better answer for that at this point. But spirit-led churches are centered on the spirit-inspired scriptures that exalt Christ. That's a spirit-led church. So to the degree that you're faithfully teaching, explaining, applying, saying in line of God's good word for the glory of Christ, not for the glory of me, not for the glory of Restoration Church, for the glory of Christ, there's a spirit-led church. That's what it is. But Paul goes on to talk about some things here. Next, he says, don't despise prophecies. Look what he says next, but test everything. So we've got a lot of help. We know what the Spirit does. Don't quench his work of empowering us to new life in Christ. Don't despise the clear teaching of God's prophetic word, but test it. In other words, well, we'll go on. So you know how you spot a fake? You know how to do this? I'm sure you'll this. The way you spot a fake is by testing it against the real thing. Comparing it to the original. The way that you can be sure, friends, prophecy, that is just this clear teaching of the prophetic apostolic doctrine, the way that you can be sure prophecy is accurate, truthful, good, right, is by testing it against the clear teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So in other words, if I were to stand up here, Bible open, and explain some passage, and then say to us, all right, guys, in light of the fact that Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, Jesus is coming back, he said he's coming back soon, so all you guys need to quit your jobs, and we're going to come up here, and we're going to pray. You guys should go, uh, no, we ain't doing that, right? But if God told me to tell you that, you, know, you would go, but no, that's not right. And by the way, that's probably what Paul's thinking about. When he says, don't surprise, don't, uh, don't quench the spirit and don't despise prophecies, but test them. Because remember, for those of you that have been around, remember, Paul's talked numerous times about not being idlers, sitting around doing nothing. And that, therefore, matching that to this notion of not quenching the spirit, but instead going on. Remember what he said back in chapter 2? I worked hard amongst all of you. Remember he says to go get your job and you know work, your, work at your jobs and these kinds of things. So if I were to say something like that, that wouldn't match the clear teaching of the apostles who were commissioned by Christ himself. So that would be wrong. You ought not follow that prophecy. Paul goes on to provide a basic summary then of how you test everything. So you say, Nathan, can you get a little bit more clear? Yeah. Paul goes on to say, look at the passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, making sure it is from God, therefore in accordance with the Spirit of God, he says two things. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. There's his counsel. That's how you know. How is it we test? You hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. I love this. He gives an affirmation and a denial. I love, I increasingly love affirmation and denials. I go meet people all the time and they tell me what they believe. You find out what somebody really believes when they tell, when you ask them to deny something. Right? Affirmation and denials. That's what he just said. Tell us, so you know you test the clear teaching of the prophetic word by telling me, what by you holding fast to what is good and abstaining, not doing, not, a, not approving every form of evil. We test the authentication of the Spirit's work of empowering us to increasingly glorify Christ by holding on to what Jesus and his apostles say is good, right, and true. And not letting it go. 
Not letting go of what Jesus says is good, right, and true because of cultural pressure. Not letting it go because we don't like it. Confession time, right? I mean, there are things in the New Testament. I'm like, I don't like that. Right? So self-control, Nathan. So, right. (laughs) Thank you, Spirit. So, right. Holding fast to what is good and abstaining every form of evil. There's going to be stuff, guys. We all know stuff that there are things in the clear teaching of the word that we might not like. We got to hold on to it. We got to hold fast to it and not just throw it out because it's not popular. And again, secondly, we abstain every form of evil. That's how we test. If the prophetic word says it's evil, no matter what I might say, no matter what you might think, no matter what Ward 3 might say, we can only call it evil because God calls it evil. In other words, we don't participate in it. We don't say it's true or good. We abstain from it. We learn to find it distasteful. Why? This is huge, guys. Because we know it cultivates death. You've got to know that. Parents, if you're raising your kids up and telling them certain things is wrong and you're not telling them why, you're not helping them, right? Show them why, because the reason why we abstain from every form of evil is not just because God said so, yes and amen, that's enough, but because it's not cultivating the life that brings glory to Christ. That's why we got to make sure we got to make those connections in our mind. So if I hear something from the Bible, I don't like, and the Bible says that's evil, then don't just say, okay, I won't do it because the Bible says it's evil. Think, all right, why, 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 why? At Restoration Church, we try to serve you that way. We try to tell you not just what is true, but tell you why it's that way for your good. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain every form of evil. We embrace the Spirit's empowering work of renewal for the glory of Christ in the church by holding fast to those two things. Paul says it's so good in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. I know, Restoration Church, you get tired of me hearing me say this, but it's such a good verse for our days. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. People are going to say that it's loving to sort of affirm something that's not true. No. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. And then the opposite side of that, Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's not the spirit. If somebody's saying I'm a Christian and they're calling something that's evil good or they're calling something good evil, that's not of the spirit. They're actively quenching the spirit right in front of you and despising prophetic word. And guys, this is why, this is why we have not only have a statement of belief as a church and a church covenant, but this is why we use them. Right? A lot of churches have statement of beliefs and they kind of set them up on a shelf and not come back to them. This is why we have a statement of faith and a church covenant and why we use them. And thirdly, this is why church membership is so important. Because it's our work to test everything and everyone. To hold fast to what is good, those who are good, and abstain everyone, those who are not evil, maybe they're taking his name. So we use the keys, Matthew 16, Jesus commanded us to give the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose on earth as it is in heaven. And therefore our work is to guard the prophetic word, guard the prophetic counsel of the truthfulness of the word, using the keys to so bind, take people in like we did this morning that says, yes, they're in Christ or no, they're not. That's our work. John Stott lists five ways, and I'm going to go through these fast. I'm going to wind down. Five ways, kind of summing this up, the ways that we can test everything and hold on to good and abstain from bad. Five ways. First, test that word against the scriptures. That's clear and obvious. We've talked about that a lot. Like the Bereans, examine the scriptures. Two, test the claim on Christ. Test that person, test that claim on Christ. 
First John 4, 1 to 3 says that false prophets have gone out uh, and the way that you know that they're false is because they're not testifying to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's one way you can know it's false. Test the Christ. Third, test the gospel. Test it against the gospel. Galatians 1 makes this so clear. Paul says, if I or an angel from heaven testifies to a different gospel, they are to be accursed. So test it against the gospel. Fourth, test the character of the speaker. Jesus speaks of false prophets and concludes in Matthew 17 with this. Sorry, Matthew 7, 15 with this. You will recognize them by their fruit. In other words, you'll know what, look at their life. What's their life like? If their life does not seem to be holding fast to the good and abstaining form of evil, you should not listen to them. And then fifth and finally, test it by testing the degree to which it builds up the church. Right? After spilling a lot of ink on giving counsel about what to do with things in the prophecy, in, in prophecy, I studied 1 Corinthians 14 a lot this week. Paul's talking about prophecy and what to do with prophecy and tongues and things like that. And then he concludes numerous times in that chapter with these words, 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. He's speaking of a local church. So guys, in the American church, we tend to read the Bible very individualistically, thinking primarily of ourselves. As we said of the Trinity, though, that is not the nature of God. God is other-oriented, right? That is That was not the nature of first century Palestine, to, to be individualistic. That is not the thrust of the New Testament, and it is not the thrust of the Spirit's prophetic work to empower us. The Spirit does work individually, yes and amen, of course he does. But he never means to leave us alone. His word, his empowering work always means to be building up the church. Therefore, we ought to test those prophecies against how it builds up God's people. And so the more that we don't quench the spirit by not despising, but inviting the prophetic word through our collective interest in Christ, the more we will enjoy the joy of our salvation and the more that we will then glorify Christ together. That is what the Holy Spirit means to do here in the church. Empower us to increasingly glorify Christ. Guys, the fact is, many people have taken the teaching of the Holy Spirit and prophecy, and they have butchered it and caused all kinds of problems. There's lots of bad teaching in the world, in this city, on this street. It's all over the place. And it is our desire as your elders to not do that to be led by the Spirit, to collectively build us up, not in the image of Nathan and not in the image of America, but into the image of the all-glorious Christ. Friends, I, church family, you should know, I sleep pretty good most nights. There's one thing that keeps me up in the night. It's our conforming to the patterns of the world as a church, slipping a little bit. And how do I know that? Because I see it in my own heart. I can quench the spirit and let and conform to the patterns of the world around. Slowly, almost indiscernibly quenching the spirit's work of empowering us towards the new life we have in Christ. Moving us away from the word and more towards sensuality. I see that slippage. I'll give you one testimony of this and I'll be done. Last week I was in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota, up there for something. And I learned about a seminary that's closing. And that seminary at one point, not that long ago, was had one of the finest faculties in all the world. Some of you, if you're even 
who had been around the faith for a little while, you would probably know a lot of these faculty. One of the best faculties in all the world. And they're closing. They're just shutting their door. The seminary. And the reason why that happened is because they compromised a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, to the point that their beliefs and the city's beliefs around them made them almost indistinguishable. So there was no need for the seminary. And beloved church family, I love Jesus and I love you too much to let that happen to us. There's no sort of liberal mega churches for a reason, right? I believe the gospel is the power of God for salvation and sanctification. The gospel is not just an aid to get to whatever I want to, to get me to. I believe that freedom is not in unlimited options, but in limited function. That is being able to do what we were designed to do by God, something that the spirit does. I believe that the cause of unity in the church is best served not by finding the lowest common denominator of doctrine, not aiming to discover how little can be believed, but instead to embrace the truth about God and his gospel and his church no matter what. And the reason why this is true is because, as it has been written, love is nourished by the strong meat of God-centered doctrine. Not just individualistically, yes, but collectively as the church, like candles forming together to be a mighty light in Tenley Town and the rest of the world. And so going back to how I began this sermon, as I think back to all of the needs that we have as a church, all these different things that we need people to volunteer for and the like, it's tempting to believe when you see them, and you're probably going to feel this because I still do, even after I preach this sermon, it's tempting to believe when you see them, these are burdensome obligations we regrettably need to fill. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it, in light of what we've considered today, is thinking them as thinking of them as pathways for the Spirit to empower us to grow up individually and collectively more into the glory of Christ for the good of our children, for the good of each other, for the good of our neighbors, and for the good of the nations. The reality is, guys, I don't know who among us will fill all of those needs that we have as a church, but I do know how it will get done. It'll be the Holy Spirit empowering you and me to step in to do hard things because we know that God will meet us in those things and grow us up into those truths as a church. Everything from maybe as small as a coffee ministry to something as significant as discipling children. And so as long as we don't quench the Spirit's work by despising prophecies and holding fast to what is good and abstaining from every form of evil, by our making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ in Washington, D.C. and beyond, we will do just fine. And soon enough, we'll be home. And we'll be glad that we gave our all to the Spirit's life in us to so empower us to glorify our Savior. Let's pray together.